so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Shadle, who's an associate professor of theology and religious studies at Marymount University. We talk about ethics, autonomous weapons, cyber warfare, and the nature of privacy. Dr. Matthew Shadle joined Marymount faculty in 2014 and lives in Northern Virginia with his wife. His writings focus on Catholic social ethics, especially the ethics of warfare and peace, immigration, and economic life. His work has been published in numerous journals such as Horizon, the Journal of Catholic Social Thought, Political Theology, and the Journal of the Society of Christian Ethics. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Shadel, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started researching and writing on the issues of Christian ethics? Well, I'm a professor of theology at Marymount University, a Catholic university in Arlington, Virginia. But my my interest in Christian ethics really began when I was an undergraduate, and our Catholic campus ministry organization went on a mission trip to Honduras over spring break. And see, seeing the poverty there and learning about the social and political causes of it got me to start thinking about how Christian faith should lead us to respond to the ethical issues we face in our world. And then when I went on to graduate school at the University of Dayton in Ohio, uh, that was at a time when the United States ended up going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's around when I became interested in the ethical questions related to war and peace, uh, some of which we're going to talk about today. No, that's really helpful. And I know some of your recent work that you've been doing is specifically in issues of uh, what people call killer robots or autonomous weapon systems and even cyber warfare. And in your work on that, I, one of the things I really appreciate about the way you approach these things, even other is- social issues, is you approach them from a uh, position of biblical anthropology or an understanding of who man is in light of God and creation. How does biblical anthropology, what does it really have to do with a lot of modern technologies, specifically that used in warfare? I think that's what makes thinking about this so interesting is that on the surface, it does seem like the world of killer robots and cyber warfare It seems really distant from the world of the Bible, but like you said, when we look at biblical anthropology, we can see how it's relevant. That um, so, for example, the Bible makes it clear that uh, even though our bodies are marked by sin, our bodies are part of who we are, and they're created good by God. 
and also the Son of God took on human flesh. So when we're dealing with technologies that seem to draw us into a virtual disembodied world, uh, we have to remember that we remain creatures with bodies and all, all of our technology remains grounded in the material world. And, and, so, and when we're talking about weapons, we have to remember that there are real human bodies that, that are, in a sense, sacred that are at stake when we're talking about how we use weapons. Um, a second thing is that the Bible makes clear that we are moral agents, that we are responsible for making morally good decisions. And most importantly, we freely respond to the grace that God offers us. And so I think that's an important starting point for when we're talking about robots making autonomous decisions on the battlefield, for example, is can they truly make the sorts of moral decisions in the way human beings do? And one last thing is that the Bible also says quite a bit about our relationship with technology, that, of course, we are created to exercise dominion over the earth, which includes developing technology. But the Bible also talks about how technology and particularly weapons, can become a form of idolatry. So one of my favorite passages is uh, from the prophet Hosea, chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. It says, Because you have trusted in your chariots and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people. So when, when the Israelites put their trust in their weapons, it leads to, to uh, disastrous consequences. Uh, rather, they should... Put their trust in God rather than in the technologies that they've created. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of approaching. And I really, and I hadn't made the connection specifically there with the book of Hosea and, and how he's speaking about that. I know a lot of times when we talk about killer robots, a lot of people immediately think like Hollywood thrillers and movies like iRobot and things like that, where you have these kind of red eyed robots ready to take over the world, like Terminator style. But how are robots currently being used in the military, both in the United States and abroad? And what are some of the concerning trends or even ethical issues and quandaries that are arising from the use of these weapon systems? I think it's important to, to first of all, realize that militaries are using robots in other ways besides so-called killer robots. And actually, the ways robots are being used might surprise people. So, for example, I think most people are aware of aerial drones. But which you could classify as a type of robot. But there are also land-based robots that do things like uh, they now have robots that can carry equipment, uh, that they can defuse bombs or detect landmines. And there are even underwater robots that can <laughs> spy on enemy ships or you know remove mines that are in the water. Uh, but, but of course, there are robots that are involved with um, targeting and killing. So some of the most serious ethical issues that are arising are when the robots are used to kill enemy combatants. And so one, one type of issue is when we're talking about semi-autonomous robots like aerial drones where there is a human operator. Um, and so the human operator uh, selects the targets and makes the decision whether or not to kill them. So there are, there are ethical issues that arise from that. But then the second area is the emerging possibility of what we would call lethal autonomous weapons. So this is where using artificial intelligence, the, um, the robot has the potential to select the targets on its own and then to execute the attack 
without a human operator ever being involved in the process. And so there's a number of ethical concerns with that. I've heard this kind of moniker used of OODA, the um, this OODA loop, kind of this decision-making loop that people um, have come up with on how these systems work and how much autonomy they actually have. Are humans increasingly being pushed off the loop where increasingly we're having maybe fully autonomous weapon systems? Or is that something that's still kind of in the future? Kind of what what level of responsibility do humans have in the decision-making with these type of robots? So, so humans being entirely off the loop is something that's in the future, although it may be the, the relatively near future, but, um, or, or I guess out of the loop. So a, a really interesting example of, of the sorts of technology that are available now are, are the Patriot missile systems, which have actually been around for a while. But for a, a Patriot missile system, there are two ways that they can operate. So Patriot missiles are, are defense missiles. So they, they defend against aerial attacks. And so if they are, if they are defending against enemy um, jets, like fighters or, or bombers, then they operate in a mode where the, the Patriot missile system is programmed to identify the targets and lock onto them. And if, if they involve you know, human pilots, then a human operator has to make the final decision to launch the missile. But if, if they are facing incoming missiles where there are no humans involved, then the Patriot missile system can lock onto the target and fire independently of the human operator. So the human operator is there and can intervene if needed, but um, the system can run relatively autonomously. So I think that, that's a good example of, of where we are right now. So, so it's a very limited range of decision making that the machine has. So it, so it has like a very specific situation. And so I think what we'll see in the future is the possibility of widening that range of possibilities for the machine to make the decision, which becomes more ethically problematic. I know one of the areas that I'm specifically interested in around drone warfare that you mentioned earlier are some of the even side effects or the after effects of drone warfare, not just the moment of engagement, um, but the effects on the human operator, on the effects kind of how these drones um, kind of shape the way that we think about the uh, methods and weapons of war. Are there ethical concerns surrounding the way that these tools kind of mediate uh, the engagement between the operator and uh, the combatant, is there anything that's going on there in terms of ethics that we should be thinking about? This is that's a really interesting question because opinions on that are mixed. So on the one side, there's a serious concern that drone operators may become desensitized to killing because in some ways it's like playing a video game. You're watching a screen and you know pressing a button so that you're not you're not physically present. You know present with the person you're trying to kill. But on the other hand, others say that um, that really a, weapon, uh, a weapons operator becomes desensitized when they don't see their target. So this would be someone using artillery or launching a missile. But as we know, drone operators, actually, they vividly see their target. And in fact, if you think about it, they can often see their target more clearly than a, a soldier on a physical battlefield who is often you know, fi- firing into something they can't see very clearly. And so, and a drone operator witnesses the effects of their actions. They see very clearly 
what happens in the aftermath. And so, so we know from experience that sometimes drone operators can experience PTSD in the same way soldiers on the battlefield do, which to me suggests they're not at all desensitized, in some ways quite the opposite. So I think, I think both of those are things we need to take into consideration, but I think the evidence seems to point more towards the second. But often, even in terms of modern warfare, modern warfare doesn't always happen in the physical space. So it's not always uh, weapon technology and things. There has been an increased rise of cyber attacks or use of cyber warfare uh, throughout the United States and throughout the world, uh, where we're even in the last few months have seen or have understood and known, uh, found out about cyber attacks that have happened here in the United States to uh, pieces of infrastructure or to certain companies or even to the federal government itself uh, through the attacks like the solar winds attack that happened in the last few months or that we found out about in the last few months. Can you help define what cyber warfare is? I think sometimes it seems like this really distant concept that's really ambiguous, but kind of defining what is cyber warfare and what are some of the ethical complexities that arise out of this kind of new digital battlefield? So you, you raise a really important point when you say that the term is ambiguous. And I think it's actually an important issue that we do use the term cyber warfare too broadly, that we refer to all kinds of cyber attacks as warfare. But, but there are many experts who have warned that, that it's, it's pretty risky to use the term so broadly because once we start calling something warfare, then it demands a certain kind of response. It demands a, a, an aggressive response, maybe you know more traditional forms of of military force, and, and, and we may regret going down that path. So just to think about that, for example, the solar winds attack that you mentioned was not really an act of warfare. It was espionage. As far as we know, the purpose of the attack was to gain access to people's emails, to learn about organizations, computer networks, and so forth. And so if, if that sort of thing had been carried out by traditional spies, we wouldn't consider it an act of war. And so, so why do we why should we call it warfare when it's done with just using computers? So I've been convinced that the term cyber warfare, if we want to be precise, we're best reserving it for two things. The first is when a military is engaged in combat and disrupts their enemy's computer or communication networks during what we would call kinetic warfare, like more traditional warfare. But that, that's not very controversial. I think most people, okay, that's just part of modern warfare. But then the second is when a cyber attack causes physical damage or human or even human casualties comparable to a kinetic attack. So it might have to be, you know, actually destroying or seriously damaging infrastructure as if, you know, as if it had been bombed or something along those lines. And and once you define it in that way, cyber warfare is very rare. There's only, you know, you could count on your hands the number of attacks that might qualify with that definition. But whether we're talking about cyber warfare in that strict sense or more the more common types of cyber attacks like solar winds, one key moral issue is how we respond to a serious cyber attack. So uh, if you keep up with the news, it seems likely that soon the United States will retaliate in some way for the solar winds attack through uh, some kind of cyber attack of our own or economic sanctions. But but a really interesting problem here is that it's it's really likely that the U that U.S. buying agencies 
have already been engaging in similar forms of cyber espionage themselves. We just don't know it because they've done a better job of keeping it secret. So, so the, the notion of retaliation is, is somewhat misplaced, right? How can you retaliate for something you've been doing all along? So, so in this case, the, the likely suspects being the Russians, they just had the bad luck of getting caught. It raises a really interesting point to me um, in terms of how you apply like a just war tradition or just war theory to issues of cyber attacks or even, as you said, cyber warfare is much more rare than cyber attacks themselves. But what is that kind of uh, retaliation look like? What does it look like? Uh, I think it's extremely – you brought up a really good point of what happens if you're actually engaging in the same type of thing. You just haven't been caught yet. And I think that's – is there any kind of – interesting things or um, questions that kind of arise from just war tradition or just war theory as it applies to kind of modern warfare or cyber attacks? Um, sure. So so I actually think one of the most interesting and, and I'll, I'll be honest, confusing ways that the just war tradition comes into play is the, uh, the criterion of legitimate authority. So in the traditional just war theory, it states that only only governments have the authority to to engage in war. Now, of course, it, it must be a just cause and, and all of that. But but when it comes to cyber warfare, one big problem is that the so-called state monopoly on violence doesn't exist, that there are both states and private individuals or groups who who are able to hack um, and and but state states have more sophisticated capabilities. But there's really no there's no restrictions on private groups engaging in cyber attacks. So it's a lot less clear who has who has any legitimate authority to engage in cyber attacks, but also cyber defense. Um, so for example, whereas when it comes to tr- the traditional use of force, we, we really rely on the government to defend our country, to defend the uh, territorial sovereignty of our country. But, but it's impossible for the government to defend the entire cyber infrastructure. One, that would just simply be too intrusive for the government to be involved in all of the computer networks. And second, just in terms of capabilities, that wouldn't really be possible. So that means that private companies are pretty much on their own when it comes to defending against cyber attacks. So we have a very different scenario than with traditional conflict or traditional warfare where we, where we rely on governments, that it's pretty much a free-for-all Right, so we we do have you know strong government actors, but but it's much more chaotic. And then another issue that I think is interesting, where it kind of bends the traditional just war uh, thinking, is that in traditional warfare, generally you want your enemy to know who is attacking them, because you you are fighting for a cause you believe is right, and and and. You need to state your intentions and make it clear, you know, we are attacking you because we we believe this cause is right. But with a cyber attack, they're often carried out in secret. And and so that the the, the perpetrators are trying to hide their identity. And that really makes it impossible to make some of the the key ethical evaluations in just war reasoning, such as how do you how do you assess if the attacker's cause is just if you don't know who it is, right? Or or if the attack was proportionate, you know, it's really hard to do those sorts of do that kind of thinking when you when the perpetrators are secret. I do want to shift gears a little bit to another research interest that you have in terms of uh, privacy or digital privacy. 
from a Christian perspective, do we have a, a form of like a right to privacy as often talked about? I know there's tons of uh, possible pieces of legislation, some places like the GDPR in Europe uh, or the California Consumer Privacy Act that was enacted just a few years ago in California talk about this right to privacy. And uh, we see this talked a lot about in terms of digital privacy and data protection and different things like that. From a biblical perspective, do we have a moral right to privacy? And if so, was uh, distinctly Christian about that as opposed to a lot of the modern conceptions surrounding moral personal autonomy or full uh, moral autonomy of the individual? Is there anything that's uniquely Christian that can inform our conversations surrounding privacy? Sure. So I, I, I would hesitate about, you know, I don't think we can directly draw a definition of privacy from the Bible, but but I think you're right that that Christians might be cautious about the way the concept of privacy is used in in popular discourse or in the law, but I think I think there really is a Christian or biblical notion of privacy, and and part of the issue is that privacy is notoriously difficult to define. It's it's one of those things that we know it when we see it, but it's hard to put into words what we mean. So, for example, often a, a common way to think about privacy is in terms of space. Like there's a certain space in which we have privacy, such as the idea of the privacy of your own home. But when you really start to think that through and apply it, it, it really breaks down, right? There's not there's not really a space where you have privacy and outside of that you don't. Or another common definition of privacy that you were alluding to is, we, especially in the law, is we define privacy in terms of personal autonomy. So for example, in the U.S., the, the supposed right to an abortion is grounded in right to privacy, right? It just means the right to decide for yourself. But if we want to think about a Christian or a biblical notion of privacy, our starting point has to be the notion of truth-telling and what forms of truth-telling are and are not appropriate in different times of relationships. So I like to think of privacy more as a relational concept rather than one based on individual autonomy. So I'll just give you a really concrete example of what I mean that doesn't really have a lot to do with technology. So for example, my doctor needs access to certain information about me and my health. Um, so we have a particular type of relationship that authorizes my doctor to have certain information about me, right? But then if my doctor shared that information with my neighbor, that's a violation of my privacy because there's nothing about my relationship with my neighbor that requires sharing that information, right? So, so it, it depends on the, the sort of relationship we have with people and what sort of information we should share or what sort of information they should have access to. So I think that's a, and, and we can define those relationships in terms of justice, right? So, so what is, what does justice require of us in terms of sharing information or keeping information to ourselves? So I think that's a helpful starting point if we want to think about from a technological perspective, when we think about which information companies like Google or Facebook have a right to collect from us when we're using the internet, and what responsibilities all the companies that are collecting our personal data and financial data, what responsibilities they have to make sure that data is secure. I think, I think thinking in terms of justice relationship and truth-telling is, is a more useful starting point for thinking about those questions. 
Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way of approaching. I had, there's not a lot of research, honestly, for listeners. There's not a ton of resources coming from the Christian community uh, diving into issues of privacy. And so that's one of the reasons I really appreciate your work and the things that you're currently working on and researching, um, because this is kind of an underdeveloped area. Uh, from what I can tell within Christian theology and specifically Christian ethics. I do want to ask you one question specific to dig in a little bit on that. Do you think that there's any role that biblical anthropology or the understanding of human beings created in God's image play into the issues of privacy? I think there there are some connections there. So the one way I think about the image of God is that it's not just telling us something about our status you know, we, we tend to associate the idea of the image of God as having, you know, dignity and things along those lines. But I think it also is telling us something that our our very being as human, and especially when, as we are imitators of Christ, we we fulfill that role as the image of God, that through our through our being, through our actions, through our words, we are communicating something to the world about God. I think that whole idea of image is that we we are reflections, right? So I think that does involve communication. And so I think that does lay at the foundation of this role of communicating truth, but also rightfully. So so I think the image of God, like you mentioned, says something that we are relational by nature, that we have a relationship with God. And like you said, God knows us more deeply than we know ourselves. But we're also relational with other human beings, and so we ha- we have that responsibility to communicate the truth, but also to be custodians of the truth, to be careful about sharing the truth rightly, but also keeping keeping information from those who don't have a right to it. So I think I think yes, definitely we could, you know, appeal to that idea of the image of God to help us think about privacy. One thing I always end with on the podcast is some recommended resources, maybe one or two books or articles that you found particularly helpful um, in terms of Christian ethics or in terms of issues of cyber warfare or autonomous weapon systems or even issues of privacy and just kind of the things that we've talked about today on the podcast. Is there any recommended resources that you would want to put in the hands of whether it's your students or people in your church um, or in your community to if they want to dig a little bit deeper on some of these issues? So two, two that stand out that have been influential in some of the things we've talked about is, well, one of them is uh, an important book on cyber warfare called Cyber War versus Cyber Realities by a scholar named Brandon Valeriano. And I really draw on him because he urges caution about the language of cyber warfare, um, about being careful about using that language of warfare. And I also appreciate him because he is very sensitive to the ethical concerns raised by the just war tradition. So he's he's a scholar in international relations, but he's He's really sensitive to those sorts of ethical questions in, when he thinks about cyber warfare. And then a second book I could recommend is a, a crucial book on the question of privacy and data, and that's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And this book is about how companies like Google and Facebook have turned our digital data into commodities. And, and I think that's especially important for us to think about because they share that data with others based on their market value instead of other values that Christians might prioritize like privacy or justice. So, so information has become a commodity in ways that we should, we should probably be uncomfortable with. 
No, I think those are two really helpful resources, especially Shoshana Zuboff's book. Um, it's it's a very long book for listeners. If you haven't picked it up yet, it's a tome. <laughs> uh, it's very dense, but it is incredibly helpful uh, in a lot of the concepts she draws and uh, even in terms of decision-making about who decides and then who decides who decides and kind of understanding a little bit more of the details and the depth surrounding a lot of these issues. Well, Dr. Shadell, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Weekly Tech. Really appreciate your work and thankful that we have a voice like you in this space, uh, kind of diving into a lot of these issues and applying the scriptures to them. So thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Shadel and learn more about his work as well as the books that he recommended in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. It's designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day as well as the top technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Music